You're listening to keynote speeches from our Melbourne Podcasters live event series. These are recorded live and feature the best podcast professionals from around the world who reveal the crafts and techniques of creating a successful show. My name is Adam Jaffrey and I'm Strategy Director at Wavelength Creative. We run the live event series and produce the podcast you're listening to right now. Today, a very special interview where we go inside ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast with our keynote speaker, Julia Henderson. This event was hosted by producer James Parkinson. So firstly, Julia, you've been here for just over a week now. Uh, What's your first impressions of the podcast community and podcasting in Australia? I'm sort of overwhelmed by how kind and open and enthusiastic everyone is. Uh, not that New Yorkers aren't nice and not that there's not community over there, uh, but it is, I feel like across the board, everyone I've been introduced to has been like gregarious and open and interested and like enthusiastic about what they're doing, enthusiastic about what I'm doing. And uh, it's really just been very lovely. Yeah, I think we're, we're so kind of far away from things here in Australia and uh, we look to the US a lot because, you know, they've kind of been leading uh, a lot of this podcast space for, for a number of years now. And obviously New York in particular is uh, very much a hub for the um, podcast community and um, particularly the professionalization of, of the podcast medium so far. But yeah, I mean, it's great to have someone like yourself over here and um, and learning all these uh, great things from uh, some of the experts, which uh, which is great. Um, so tell us, how did you start uh, to begin with? How did you start as a producer and an audio storyteller? Uh, well, I actually started somewhat late. Uh, for a long time, I was a storyteller in a theater sense. I went to school, originally got a BFA in theater, and I moved to New York, and I started a theater company with people I'd gone to school with, which still exists, and they still make wonderful stuff. But I kind of fell out of love with it and got kind of frustrated and disillusioned. I think I went into it with like some idealistic vision of the importance of storytelling and theater, especially in New York, is a very exclusive thing to make. It's hard to make, it's hard to fund, and it's hard to get to, and it's hard. I mean, tickets even for little things are expensive. And I think I had slowly been building up, you know, reservations and and inching myself away from it. And then I moved across the country and was really not interested in like starting over and meeting new collaborators. And my partner was like, well, you need to figure out then how you want to tell stories. May I suggest some technology? (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) okay. Uh, And, you know, I have been an avid public radio consumer. Um, You know, much of what I listen to and much of what you know, help shape my taste was coming from, you know, what I was listening to on WMYC and through This American Life and Radiolab. And so I sort of put the things together and started playing with audio and interviewing people and learning Pro Tools. And then I went to a documentary program in Maine called the Salt Institute. And it sort of reaffirmed for me that this instinct that audio storytelling was a really good fit for me was right. Uh, And, you know, I know that podcasting and public media won't always be as available and as free as it is now. And it is certainly expensive and time consuming to make. But it felt to me that there was a democratization happening there. There was something that, you know, you could tell stories and people could hear them, would hear them in a way that uh, theater just didn't feel like it had the same possibilities. So I became an audio producer. And I guess you probably have a lot more control over things in the audio space as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I just really like, I like audio and I like the intimacy of it. And I really like, you know, I worked in public radio for a bit before I became a full-time podcast producer. And I really like the fact that, you know, podcasts are still a medium that we largely consume individually and that we largely like listen to through headphones rather than large and over speakers like there's something you can really manipulate and play with audio and get weird and specific and you know nuanced with it that way so yeah producing things for public radio that are primarily like on air um what are the differences between that and then producing something that's you know for a podcast where you don't have 
the same time constraints and you've got more time to actually, you know, craft a, a story and do your research and things? You know, the time concern is the biggest difference, right? Like I worked for an hour long magazine program. And so we were always producing to a clock and we had tremendous flexibility because our, we had an A, a B and a C segment, but they were flexible, meaning we would, all we had to do was hit the ultimate over like the time number, which was like 54 minutes. And we were able to, when we put the show out, we sent out the information saying our seg A break happens at this minute and seg B break happens at this minute. So that's a lot more flexibility than a lot of radio has. Um, but even still, that feels like super constraining because you're ultimately making a lot of editorial choices based on the fact that everything in the show has to add up to this last magic number. And, you know, you end up killing a lot of darlings or, or not going down avenues with people or, you know, you just it just changes like a lot of things, you know. Um, I guess like those constraints can sometimes be positive as well when you kind of force into a, a box and you have to kind of make something within a time limit um, and have to kind of nail a story in you know a shorter period of time it really forces you to, to cut things and, and get to the crux of a story absolutely I wouldn't I wouldn't be the podcast producer I am if I hadn't had that time in public radio you know we had a weekly show so we were just constantly I was just constantly firing on a bunch of different cylinders. I was pitching things, booking things, you know, chasing guests and booking them, prepping and researching, conducting and directing interviews, cutting tape and working on features like all the while at once. And you have you just learn to make quick decisions and you learn how to hear things and you you just learn a lot because you're doing it over and over again quickly. It was a tremendous, you know, learning playground and and you do, you know, I mean, as much as you want freedom, constraints kind of force a different kind of freedom. I mean, I think you see that in art all the time, like yeah. in the, you know, the more fascist a society becomes, the like more expressive people get and, you know, they find outlets for their creativity. So that certainly happens in the constraints of like a public radio clock. Hmm. Would you say that people then who are, you know, maybe doing their own podcast and whether it's storytelling or a completely different format to maybe set up some of that kind of those kind of limits for themselves and a bit more of a structure to to help themselves like plan a schedule and and kind of go through that grind of making contact with people and search chasing stories chasing interviews and try to I guess try to recreate that kind of demand of themselves in in that situation to kind of, I guess train themselves to meet that those kind of standards I think it is I mean, it's important to get practice however you can. And so, you know, I think that learning how to do some of the things that will be required is important. So setting schedules like is such a valuable tool. I think Veronica talked about this yesterday, but yeah. like, you know, if you can learn to honestly assess what a project is going to take and what the steps are and how much time it takes and what kind of help you might need to get there, those are really valuable skills and they're valuable for a producer, but they're also like they're lacking in a lot of places in the podcast world. Like, and you know, it's an industry that's all learning as it goes and kind of making it up as it goes. And so, you know, you are at an advantage if you are able to assess, you know, what you can do and how long it's going to take and set some deadlines and learn how to stick to them. So certainly, like as you're working on projects independently, as you're conceiving of projects independently, you know, be specific about it and get organized and flex those muscles because those will help get you ahead. Um, make a lot of stuff, you know, and don't even worry about making it for an audience, but like practice is really important. There's a lot of technical skill involved in constructing something. And the more you've worked by yourself making things, you know, they can mean nothing. It can be an interview with your friend or your roommate or someone down the street, but it will help you to learn how to do all the like pro tool shortcuts or whatever audio program you use shortcuts. Like you will learn how to hear and mix and be faster so that when you are working on something you care about, you're already that far ahead and you're faster and more efficient at it. Yeah. I think that's often overlooked by people that 
those skills that you're building and working on as you're making a show, whether, you know, you're getting in any audience or, or whatever, like they're really valuable skills and it doesn't matter if you, you know, eventually want to go on and work in the podcast space or not, you know, it's a really valuable skill set that can be put into practice in lots of different ways. Um, and also I think placing those demands on yourself, it's, you know, you're building a lot of those skills that can be really valuable in the long run. Um, so in 2016, you joined ESPN. Mm-hmm. How did that all come about? Jody Avergan, who I had worked with at WNYC a little bit, was around WNYC when I was there. And he got a green light. He was, at that point, head of podcasts and hosting the political podcast for 538, which is a data news website. And conveniently, 538 shares a floor with ESPN Films. And ESPN Films you know, have been thinking about trying to get their 30 for 30 storytelling brand into the podcast space. And they saw Jody across the floor and they like hatched a plan and got a budget. And Jody came and recruited me that summer because Jody was really committed to building a team that would be diverse and not necessarily who you would think of to tell sports stories. Um, he really thought, you know, we would be able to come into the space in an interesting way and really hold up 30 for 30s kind of aesthetic ethos of telling sports stories that are about more than just sports. Mm-hmm. If it was, you know, if he didn't just go out and like hire a team of bros. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess so. for context as well, for anyone who's not familiar with 30 for 30, um, it's a film documentary series um, that ran, started in 2009, I think, 30 stories in celebration of ESPN's 30th anniversary. And it's had several, several different um, kind of forms, um, different seasons throughout that. And it's changed a little bit, but um, and the podcast is a spin-off from that with the same kind of approach, but in the audio format. So with that, you had the idea for Big Room when you first started, but it took you know a couple of years for that to kind of get off the ground. Um, can you explain how that all came about in terms of the initial story and how and what what sparks that for you? I guess what I want to know is what makes the Big Room story a thirty for thirty story because it's you know a sports to- storytelling show. People may not consider uh, yoga to be a sport. Um, but I guess at, at the core of, of 30 for 30 is that it's, you know, it's more than sports and it's about the human side of things. So what made it a great fit and how did you manage to pitch that? Yeah, uh, it was, you know, it was a story I was interested in and had been interested in because I had been big in the Bikram world for a while. I was a person who practiced Bikram yoga daily for about seven years of my life. I managed a studio in New York City for three years. And I had been following the story since the first allegations came out in 2013. And, you know, working on an arts and culture news magazine program, there wasn't really any way to shoehorn it in there. But when I got recruited by ESPN, you know, I immediately started to think of what types of stories should we be telling and what type of stories I wanted to tell. And at the time, you know, I was recruited literally as Brock Turner. I don't know if Australia got this story, but we had, there was a big story in the summer of 2016 where a Stanford swimmer, at an Ivy League college on a prestigious team in a prestigious sport there, was accused of raping a girl, a fellow student on campus, uh, while she was passed out drunk. And she actually made this incredible statement, and there was all of this like outrage over him, and he ended up essentially getting like a little bit of probation. And it was... You know, it was a really frustrating moment for women in America, for myself. And I started looking around, you know, it felt important to me to tell a story that fit in that world. I felt like this is a this is a conversation that we're starting to have and that we need to have, and I don't feel that we're having it well. And, you know, I looked back at the biggest assault and rape stories in America that have really made a splash were all, in recent years before that, were all around false accusations. There was a big scandal over an article Rolling Stone ran without fact-checking it that ended up being false about the University of Virginia. 
there was an excellent 30 for 30 film about the Duke lacrosse team that was falsely accused of rape. And it just felt to me that that was a that that was dangerous. The stories we tell and the stories we remember hearing really inform a lot of what we think and a lot of how we move forward. And so I really kind of had to be in my bonnet that we needed to, especially with myself and another female producer on the team and two female PAs, you know, that I, we needed to come into this space and tell a different narrative. And the Bikram story kept like coming back to me as kind of a perfect way to do that. I was nervous that they wouldn't think yoga was, you know, sports adjacent enough. (laughs) Um, But I believed that, you know, there was this rich historical and cultural contextual element to it, which I know is really crucial for like the best of 30 for 30 films. You know, I knew that the fact that like understanding how 70s LA was this kind of like perfect little petri dish for this like type of yoga and this mentality to take off I you know the celebrity connection him as this charismatic and yet like demanding an abusive type of teacher I felt that there was a universality in that that Americans and you know this is not at all unique to America but Americans really believe in a no pain no gain philosophy and we revere coaches who hurdle abuse and insults and get us to act like through strictness and through you know discipline we really love discipline in sports and that discipline often becomes a shield for really horrific behavior Bikram's not alone in that and so I felt like I felt it was big enough even though it was very niche and very sports adjacent rather than sports centric and I just decided like what the hell I'm just gonna throw it out there and see how it flies and I was lucky enough to be working on a team that was thinking sports adjacently in a way that they you know listened to my pitch which was you know long I do look back at the pitch and I'm like well this was always a series there's no way this was an episode Mm. and they said okay They heard the themes. They decided it was worth the risk. You know, we did decide, I will say I got a green light, but we knew immediately that it was a little bit outside of the realm of what an audience might expect from us enough and a complicated enough story that we were not going to aim to get it into our first season. Like we knew no matter what, we would hold it for at least our second season that, you know, the first season needed to be something that felt a little bit more like... Mm. Oh right, that's what they would make. Yeah, and I think because the uh, the film series is you know every episode is a different story, so to kind of launch the show with this, the same format and kind of you know have that aesthetic to it, and then you know two seasons in go okay let's flip the script and change it up and follow one story for five episodes, and now there's season four uh, just launched on Tuesday and it's back to the uh, the original format with a different story for every episode. Um, but I guess there is that thing about sports and there's that machoism about it and that's very persistent in, in a lot of professional sports and even below that as well. So I think it's really, you know, it's, it's great that you've chased this story and, and made it work and actually, you know, given light to, to a story that I'd never heard of, uh, to be honest. I mean, this stuff was obviously in the media um, a few years ago, but I'd didn't hear about it uh if i was in the states maybe i would have but i think you explored it in a way that was you know really respectful to the victims involved and treated it with you know the respect it it deserved and and went into you know the depth that that was required to actually put this into context because there's a lot of layers to the story yeah that was really important to me um you know i wanted to tell a story where i could give victims their voices and create the space Uh, for them to tell their stories rather than for me to come in and take over their narratives. But I also felt like it was a space to give context that would set it apart. You know, I don't necessarily know what simply recounting, you know, the atrocities that he committed would do. It just, you know, which is how I feel like this story had been dealt with. You know, HBO Real Sports did a segment, Nightline did something, And, you know, the way it had been approached was very typical of news magazine features, American style anyway, where, you know, everything feels like an interrogation. 
and all you focus on are the sensational bits and the tragedy of it and you just that's all that's all you get in your lens and i don't think that that way of approaching assault stories really helps anyone not the general public and not the victims uh it felt like if we're telling the story the reason to tell the story isn't just to luxuriate in someone else's like worst moment but it's to understand the power structure at play and the things that moved around to create a world in which this was possible. Because if you understand how these things happen, maybe in another instance they won't. Um, so that was really, really crucial and critical to us and to me. And and that's kind of how I ended up like digging in my heels and being adamant that like we had to do the story justice and we couldn't do it in 45 minutes. When you're approaching those kind of stories and you've got you know, interview subjects where you're, it's pretty, you know, a heavy topic. How do you approach that? What kind of time frames involved? How much do you have to spend with them just to, you know, make them feel comfortable with you and, and trust you to, to be able to open up? What is that interview process like? I will say that it's completely unique to each individual and it varied a lot inside even the scope of this program. You know, it, it, some of it depends on how much work they've done, right? Or where they are at in healing their trauma. Uh, patience is the biggest thing. I mean, I chased Jill Lawler, who is like, you know, the center of our episode four, who's the victim who shares her complete story with us. You know, it took me, I think it was close to nine months. By the time we sat down and did the interview, I think I had been trying to talk to her and convince her to talk to me for about nine months. And it started at the most, you know, basic outreach level. At first I was trying to go through her lawyers and her lawyer's publicist and I would get closer and closer. Um, you know, the biggest help there was that I met and befriended Liz Winfield, who had been a teacher herself, whose daughter was really like a big Bikram yogi and very famous and especially up in the inner circle among teachers. And Liz had had this moment of like complete flipping. She had gone from being super supportive of Bikram kind of crazily so to as the women came forward like it clicking and her like realizing oh my god this stuff has been happening all along and she became the most outspoken advocate for all the victims and she's actually the one that Jill came forward to and and Liz was a slow process of gaining trust I mean we spent probably 10 to 12 hours on the phone getting to know each other with her giving me information and sort of seeing what I did with it and how I handled it. Uh, we spent, I went to Salt Lake City and spent a couple of days with her. You know, we went on some hikes. We spent time before she just needed to feel like, to feel me out in person and see if she could trust me. And then once she did, she started helping me uh, talk to people that I either hadn't been able to reach or hadn't even known about, including Jill. She started giving me direct contact information for Jill, and she started advocating on my behalf to Jill. And Jill was just in a place that, you know, she was trying to move on with her life, and she was really scarred from having done an HBO Real Sports and a Vice interview. Those were the only media she had done, and she was really just, she felt traumatized and taken advantage of after each of those instances. And so she was just not, like, she wasn't telling me no, and I was hearing from people that she was getting my notes and listening to them, but, you know, it took a while before she decided that she wanted to take the risk and talk to me and think about talking on tape. You know, and I was just completely transparent. I'm very transparent when I chase people. I would rather be transparent than get myself caught later on with someone not understanding what I was asking or what I was going for or expecting of them. So, you know, I was clear with her about the scope of the project and how we wanted to approach it and that I was trying to approach telling a victim story in a different way and that, you know, I was honest with her about my own sensitivity to the subject matter and experience in my own life and with people in my life and, you know, honest that, you know, we would find a way to make this a safe space for her and she would have control over the experience and, um, you know, I was just completely open with her and eventually it worked, but it was a really slow process and it was really, um, you know, you have to educate yourself as much as I knew 
And as much as, you know, yeah, I just had to, I also did a lot of work going, you know, my sister's a social worker and I read a lot of stuff on RAIN and talked to a lot of people and advocates to make sure that, that I could create a safe and healthy space and I could, you know, get the information I needed, but also do it without re-traumatizing her. And yeah, it just takes patience and education. How much do you push for that though when you know that you're going after something that is quite sensitive and that the person may be hesitant to to speak to you how do you know like when to like give up or like give them a bit of space and that kind of thing like if you had been independent during this whether you had you know a career behind you or not without the weight of ESPN would that be like an even harder point kind of thing it definitely it definitely could have been I mean at the end you know, I give a lot of space, which is how this ended up taking, you know, nine months. I didn't think that there was any point at which, you know, being like, it's been a week, Jill, what's going on was ever going to help us and would probably have severed our relationship earlier. Uh, I was cognizant of the fact, and there was plenty of other work to do, that, you know, I would just give her space and I would, you know, check in with other people rather than badgering her before the next time I sent her communication or reached out to her. On the one hand, having an actual company behind you helps a lot. On the other hand, you know, ultimately it came down to the fact that Liz Winfield trusted me. If Liz had not trusted what I was about to do, Jill never would have trusted what I was about to do, no matter who was producing it. Um, But that said, you know, I think part of, like Liz took a liking to me and felt like she could trust me. And she also, you know, is savvy enough to think through and be like, well, also if ESPN is promoting this, like, and you tell this story right, it's a very big platform to like reignite the story and expose what happened and how. Um, so, you know, having ESPN really helped galvanize Liz, you know, on my behalf. I guess it's not the the first, uh, you know, kind of sensitive story that ESPN has tackled within 30 for 30, uh, particularly in the film series as well. There's, there's quite a lot of stories that, that do, you know, push the envelope quite a bit. So um, I guess there is that element to it as well. I want to focus on the ESPN team as well and, and how you guys all work together. How big is the team? At 30 for 30? Uh, the team is pretty small. Jody is our senior producer and serves as host. Um, he also serves as our story editor, executive producer. There's an executive producer, Erin Lydon, at ESPN Films, who's directed a couple of films herself. She serves as story editor. Um, and then we have three producers on staff and one part-time producer and one assistant producer um, who comes to us from the films team. He's not a podcast guy, but he's incredibly valuable because he understands how to find ESPN archival like nobody else. Yeah, and so when we work on a story, uh, you know, we have two different methods. Like we make stuff in-house, like I reported and produced this, and I will be the only producer on the project uh, Jody and Aaron in the later stages when there are cuts will come in as story editor. I had a PA for the first chunk of this um, who helped logistically in terms of booking tape syncs or studios, getting tape that it came in, sent out to be transcribed, logging archival that came in, like those sort of like unglorious but crucial tasks. Um, We do budget in for an archival researcher who's someone who helps us externally. Archival research is such a crazy relationship-based chase that it really helps to hire someone that actually just does that for a living and knows, has contacts everywhere and can get people to call you back and actually look through their archive for you uh, and can negotiate deals. One thing we do that is very different from a lot of podcasting is we license everything because we come from a films company that has to do that. So we are, you know, which is a weird process because a lot of media entities don't even know how to write up a contract for us or what to charge us. You know, we're const it's like a, it's a negotiating from scratch thing that we're still figuring it out, but more and more companies are doing it. Uh, you know, so much podcasting comes from public media or people that made public media that they just assume that, 
fair use clauses that protect news organizations, protect everyone, and that's not true. So yeah, so I, and I also, for this, I had a legal researcher. I had a woman in LA who saved my life and spent a few long months just tracking down all sorts of court documents and reading them and debriefing me on them. And that was... That was the team. The other, you know, the other staff producers aren't involved. They're working on their own projects. But ESPN also does, because we are such a small team and we are making a lot of content, we actually also mimic the films department model of outsourcing. We'll hire outside production companies who will come in and pitch us a story and a budget and we'll approve the budget and it's on them to make sure the right producer is on it and they have an editor and a mixer and they pay for their composer and all that good stuff. Um, that's sort of how we handle the amount we have to make and how small we are. Do you think you could have made Bikram by yourself, even if you had everyone that you wanted to talk to agree? I mean, in many ways I did, um, but no. I mean, I find it like it's so crucial whether, you know, they were officially hired or they were unofficial. Like I would have had to have someone be like a sounding board and an editor. Um, you just, you need that whether you're close to the material or not. Uh, also the, the production value on it is so good. And like, I'm good at cutting tape and I'm good at mixing, but like the scoring, like our composer on this just like took the whole thing to a whole new level. So like, I mean, I could have made something and called it Bikram and it might have been, it might have had some impact, but I can't imagine it being what it was without like the story input I got from my editors and the uh, scoring and mixing help we got from our composer and engineer. What's the timeline like? Obviously Bikram, you spent I think over a year uh, reporting on it. Um, For an average episode, what's the timeline like and how much are you guys planning ahead for, you know, future seasons and... The timeline is something we're still figuring out. Um, you know, it's weird. We're on season four, but we're still very much a startup and we're still, we still feel like we're trying to get our stride. You know, I will say we started from zero with nothing and put out five episodes in June and July. We were all hired and came on in the fall of 2016. I think things were greenlit. We probably were in production by December. So, you know, it was a good six to seven months for those first round of stories. And that's, you know, fair to also fast. You know, there are places, outlets that give longer and there are times when you can turn things around more quickly. You know, a lot of it does depend on how complicated the reporting of it is. You know, if you have difficult subjects or subjects that are hard to pin down or a story with a lot of people um, or that requires a lot of travel that can slow the production process down. But we, we try to have like something that looks like six ish months for an episode. Just for a single episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that is, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty aggressive. Mm. Be kind of working on the teams working on multiple stories at once. Yes. Um, and so we fill a bunch of different roles, like, you know, when you're not actively reporting something or even when you are, depending on how much of your time that's taking, you'll be assigned to edit something else, or you'll be assigned to project manage and edit one of these, something that's in production with an outside production company. So it's always a lot of things at once. Compared to the stories you were producing prior to joining ESPN, how do the stories you're working on now differ And how does kind of sports storytelling fit into its own little kind of niche? What's different about it? Uh, You know, the biggest difference is that this is long form. And any feature making I was doing on the show I was at before was all much shorter form. It was something that would sit inside of a 60-minute magazine, uh, which is part of why I jumped at this opportunity because I really love long form narrative. And, you know, that was an art show and arts are maybe even harder to tell stories about because a lot of it is conceptual or it's an object or, you know, it's, it's a process. Uh, You know, art is a fun topic to try to tell stories about because it forces you to really clarify and get creative about what a story is. So it's different in a lot of ways, you know, but sports, I love, I mean, I like sports. 
I enjoy sports, uh, but I really love sports storytelling because sports have such like inherently have stakes and inherently like someone wins and someone loses. Like there are all these like really basic tropes of storytelling that exist inside of like sports, whether it's a game or a season or, you know, the Olympics, like whatever it is, like there's, you know, there are people overcoming huge obstacles. There are, you know, these rags to riches tales. There are, you know, Cinderella stories. There are, you know, there are often like huge prizes and huge stakes involved and a range of emotion. And, you know, sports is a really great like cultural thermometer. I was about to say, yeah, there's such a, a strong cultural connection and it's um, like with so many sports. Yeah. Right? And you just, you know, often culture and society are just like projecting themselves down on players and what they see happening on a field. And likewise, often decisions that are being made on a field or things that are happening with players or teams are, you know, just holding a mirror up to the people that are watching them, whether or not they choose to look in that mirror is a different story, but that just feels like such a rich and important like storytelling thing. It's so nice to tell stories where the context matters and it's saying something bigger whether or not the people involved in the story understand that is generally saying something much bigger what's something that you haven't seen in a sports story from any outlet before that you think you know maybe needs coverage or um something that you haven't seen before that you you would like to see that is a good question um i would like to see there are a lot of things i would like to see but i would like to see sports stories get like weirder and artier, you know, like I think that there's a natural tendency to tell them in a, in a more straight ahead way. And yet I think because of the complexity that's there, like why shouldn't we approach them in complex and weird sound designy ways? Like why shouldn't, we just go inside of someone's head like during you know a particular game you know i'm i'm really interested now in mental health as it relates to sports which i feel is like a topic you know that's coming up especially in the us more and more athletes are starting to like address their mental health struggles yeah. and you know i really would love to do a story where you know someone can be articulate about what they are struggling with like in juxtaposition to like these tremendous moments when like they're on the like the world's biggest stage like doing the most important thing of their life yeah i just i think we can go much bigger much smaller much weirder much sound artier and just keep surprising ourselves what are the biggest challenges with sports stories the biggest well, there are a couple of big challenges the first is that like a lot of people just don't think they want to hear a sports story yeah you know, like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like sports. And, you know, you have to convince them that there's a story that's worth hearing, you know, which is doable. Like I think a core, like I know a lot of people in my life who are huge fans of the 30 for 30 like films and do not fancy themselves sports fans would tell you like they're like, I hate sports, but I love 30 for 30s. Mm. And so, you know, it's possible to get there, but like that is a challenge and a hurdle. Um, the other challenge is just that sometimes you're dealing with something that has a very specific vocabulary and a very specific set of rules and a very like specific history that's unfamiliar to most and dealing with that in storytelling is always a challenge because you have to set it up. But like the act of setting up and explaining can be so alienating to a listener. I mean, you can alienate people that already know those facts and those names and those things. But there's also a way in which the act of over explaining or having to do all that housekeeping like can take you out of the narrative and can create a distance. You know, it's it's finding the way to, to do those things that like helps a listener become part of that world and feel the specificity of that world. Um, and that's, you know, that is a big writing and structure challenge. What stories do you think work better, like individual stories or stories with maybe a wider scope within the sports world? I don't know that one or the other works 
better. What do I you think. Like, what do you prefer working on? <laughs> um, I like a variety. Well, the fewer people involved, the easier it is to do something more akin to non-narrated, which I find really exciting, and I like to listen to those things. But I also I like love having a bunch of characters. I can say that I would like to. I like the other, but I am constantly a person that's like, how many people can we squeeze in here? And I need to talk to this person too. And yeah. I like, you know, like I like, I like hearing from like a group and I've had fun with that. You know, like I think I obviously used that in Bikram cause it was about a huge community, but I found, you know, even in working on Yankee suck that like I used those guys as like a group yeah. and like the chorus and being able to weave them, you know, is something I like doing. Too many kind of voices in a story can be a bit complicated though, right? It can, yeah. you know, people, because you can't see someone, you can't just put a, a title card up there with someone's name. You've got to, you know, reintroduce them, you know, quite often sometimes if, they're, if it's a longer story, longer piece. Voices can sound similar sometimes, so you kind of got to be careful, right? Yes. And voices that you wouldn't expect to sound similar can sound similar and throw off a narrative working on Juiced, actually, the episode that came out. Uh, there are two characters who have very little connection in the story. The editorial assistant who ends up working on the book and the guy who ghostwrites the book. You know, they're never like in a scene together. Like they don't interact in terms of like the narrative storylines. And they're very different people, very different ages. And oh my God, they have like the same exact voice. It's like maddening. And then you're like, well, I guess we always have to be IDing Daniel and Ketman. Cause yeah, maybe EQing their voices a little bit just to throw one <laughs> off the other yeah. or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, in too many voices, you know, it just, your narrative ultimately, like the story you're telling will tell you who should be there, who should not. You know, you need to make sure that if you have something that feels like a much more straight ahead narrative where there is a protagonist and there's someone you care about and it's their journey, then you need to make sure that they're present enough and you're not introducing a lot of people that are confusing or distracting or pulling away. You know, everyone that's there should have a purpose. It's going to add to the story in some yeah. way and offer a different perspective. If you know like what their purpose is in the narrative, you can put them in. If that's a hard question to answer, they shouldn't be there. What's the most kind of challenging aspect in those more personal stories that you've done? The first challenge is getting the access and getting the tape, you know, conducting sensitive interviews and still being able to have the ability to go back and do pickups, you know, to circle back and be like, could you tell me that story one more time and a little bit more this way? Um, you know, those things are, you don't know if you're going to get that opportunity or how it's going to go. You know, it, there's just a lot more, there's a lot more variable in terms of the human condition and the human reaction and what you'll have to deal with. The other challenge is, you know, then it becomes a challenge of editing because tone can really vary wildly. You know, you might not be able to like, mix the first answer with the pickup as easily as you may in other like lower stake or less emotional situations. And then it's, you know, the challenge of story editing and the moral weight of how you are editing and what part of their story you're using and what parts you're leaving out. And, you know, the stakes are just that much higher for making sure that you're telling their story, not taking their story, and that you're being true to what they said to you and true to what they meant. Particularly when it's a, a really sensitive story like, like Big Room is. Yeah. That was a really hard episode to edit. Uh, I was pretty adamant that I really wanted to slow it down and let Jill, you know, tell us as much as she could. And the challenge there is just that that takes time like a source is never going to say something as concisely as if you you know wrote it edited it and kept streamlining it down to like the shortest version possible and threw in a couple bits of their tape to support it um and so you have to deal with you just have to deal with finding that space and figuring out when are the times you can move it along without like taking it away from them yeah big room aside what do you look for in a story? What needs to stand out to you in, in a great sports story? Someone that you care about. 
like there has to be some great character that someone will want to listen to. And that can, you know, that can present itself in a number of ways. You know, like you hear things like make sure the person's a good talker or has a good voice. And that's good advice, but it's like problematic because it's kind of loaded. It's easy to, it's really easy for that to be a limiting factor in terms of keeping things very homogenous, you know, like it's, it's a very, it's a very loaded and coded thing to say. I think of it more like, is there someone in the story who, like, what is the so what? I mean, the so what is really like the most important thing. Like if you're telling a story, like why? Why is it compelling? What is the, what is the takeaway? Like, what is the bigger thing? Like, what is the point of sharing this narrative? You know, if you, back to my really idealistic thoughts on the importance of storytelling to a culture and a people, you know, like what is that? What is what would, if you were in ancient Greece and this was either in, you know, the comedy or the tragedy, the satire, or the tragedy you're watching, like what would be like the point or the theme of that satire or that tragedy? Like what is, what is the, is this for catharsis? Is there something about like our hubris as people like, or is this some like, is there some systematic failure that like we need to point out? Like, what is the th- what is the thing? And the thing can be small, like small and personal works too. It doesn't always have to be like the biggest, like you know, darkest themes. But like, so what? Why do I care? Why would a listener care? And is there a person? It's really hard to tell a story where there's not a person who can be at the center of it. It's not impossible. It just requires a lot more, it just makes it a lot riskier. So, you know, I look for a so what in a person. Have you had stories that seem amazing on the surface and then you start to report on them or maybe you get to the edit and you're like, this isn't really working? And how do you, how do you work through that and make the decision to, you know, kill a story potentially? I think killing stories is really important. I don't think we do it enough. Uh, I mean, like this American life, those people kill a lot, Mm. like a lot. And it's why they're good. And they don't feel any guilt about it. Like they just, it's like a part of their practice. It's been built into their budget forever that like no one's going to lose their job or lose any sleep if like something just, you know, at some point in the process isn't working and they just decide like, no. And I think that's like the healthiest attitude I have terrible trouble with that because I don't work in a place where we kill a lot of stuff. Um, and I'm just a person that like always wants to make something work and doesn't like giving up. And so that's like a, that's, those are my own issues. But, um, you know, I think it's really, it's important to like give yourself that freedom. That's something that like I need to be better about, but you know, if something's not working you know, when I first, actually, when I ver- first came on in, like, the sort of, like, pre-period to me, like, having an official first day, I came in and sat in on some edits for a short-run series that 538 was doing that was sports-related. And, you know, they had turned them around really quickly. They had small budgets. They had really small teams. But they were kind of about people that, like, changed the game and in a way that was, like, forward-thinking, and they weren't appreciated. Like, they were ahead of their time, I think is what the series was called. And, you know, we came in, and they were in pretty rough shape, even though they were pretty close to air when we came in. And, you know, there were stories that there were several of them, like, I would have killed in another world or lifetime. You know, there were some reporting holes or there was some, like, bad tape, bad quality of tape, like, you know, that couldn't, nothing could be done about it. The person was like in a remote place and there was no travel budget and there was no studio nearby and you just dealt with what you dealt with. And, you know, you just look for ways to like try to make some lemonade out of the lemons, you know, like what are the things you can do to like mitigate the noise or own up to the noise? Like, is there a way, like who can you make compelling in this or, or maybe, I mean, often trying to go smaller will help, you know, like often if you're just like, this is trying to do too much, but there's one thing in here that's compelling. And if we just tell the story of the like one thing in here that's compelling, like it's actually, you can save a lot of things that way. You know, like often stories are trying to do like A, B, C, and D. And, you know, if they're not working with all of those things and you're just like, well, you know, actually C is really interesting. And you just like kind of throw it all out and start over with C and you make that your backbone. It's going to be a heck of a lot stronger. 
You gave us some key tips yesterday at OzPod. Mm-hmm. Is it three or four? Four. Four. Okay. <laughs> so it's everyone here who are mostly independents and a lot of people starting out to beginner storytellers, mm-hmm. whether that's no matter what the format is, what's number five? What's another big tip you would give someone to make compelling audio? Okay. So not one of the four. Uh, number five would be... I think, and this is a very important one, but I think once you have an idea, you know, ask yourself if you believe in that idea. And if you do, you just have to commit to believing in it and believing yourself. Because whether you work for a company or whether you're doing it independently or whether it's your first story or your thousandth story, for most of the process, you will feel like no one else believes in it or believes in you. Like that is just normal. And part of it is just that it's not everyone else's like baby and it's not the thing everyone else is working on, like even your editor or you know your PA or whoever. It's not like the center of their concentration the way it is yours. And the act of creating is so much about trial and error and failure and finding it. And when you're finding it, it often just feels like being lost. And that's like a really hard and negative feeling a lot of the time. So you just need to know that you believed in this thing. And like you have to keep reminding yourself that you believe in this thing. And like keep doing it because you believe in it. Like keep knowing that. And if you believe in it, it will rub off on yourself and the story and it'll rub off on other people. You know, just you just have to believe in it and you have to because no one else will do it for you. Um, and that's like just kind of the cold, hard truth I'm sure there are some teams somewhere that like everyone is always supportive of everyone at all times, but even there probably people feel alone sometimes. So just when you come up with an idea, tell yourself why you believe in it and just like write that down somewhere and just keep it, keep it handy. Excellent. Well, thank you, Julie, for sharing your, your wisdom and behind the scenes of ESPN. Appreciate it. Thank you. Any questions? I guess I would also say have fun, which is part of like the have the dance break, but like have fun. Like it's hard to make stuff and it's tedious and there are all sorts of challenges and you know, a lot of us still work too many hours and we need to like fix that and get better at it. But like have fun. Like cause the whole I would assume that you're telling stories because you want to. So like there is fun and joy in it and it's a great thing to do. And so just also remember to have fun. That was terrific. I really enjoyed that. Uh, you made a quick mention of the difference between, well, you said, said something like, make sure you share the story, don't take the story. And I'd be interested in hearing, you know, expand on that a little bit for us. You know, I think that this is something that the audio community is starting to grapple with in big ways and in small ways. But reporters and journalists have a deep responsibility and a moral responsibility to their subjects. And I think we've always looked at it just in terms of being truthful, which is a really good goal. But I think that we are becoming more aware of the fact that who tells a story matters deeply. And there are an awful lot of people like me who are white who for a long time have come in and told other people's stories for them. And it's not that it's not that, that cannot happen, but there's a way to do it responsibly. And I think we're just starting to think about what that means. You know, when you're telling a story versus like appropriating or taking a story. And I think that the act of documentary um, can easily cross over into the line of taking. And I just don't think it's something that we've thought about a lot as an industry or producers. And it's something I think we have to think about. And, you know, I think our, our social and ethical consciousness, you know, needs to, needs to have these conversations and grapple with these things. And, uh, I think it's something we should think about every time we, you know, embark on a project. Hi, my question's about um, how you guys source your stories, I guess, but how do you derive what's going to become the next topic, I guess? We have a pitch process that works in a bunch of different ways. You know, everyone on staff is encouraged, welcomed, asked to pitch things. Um, 
And I think as producers, we like to do that. You know, a lot of us, you know, you want to work on something that you are interested in and, you know, uh, it's, it's a little weirder to be assigned something and be like, I wonder if this is a good fit or does the story really hold up? Uh, that does happen, but um, more often than not, you know, we're pitching ideas and a lot of them get shot down and a lot of them get maybes and a lot of them get put in like a folder and some of them get a yes. Um, we also have the benefit of working inside of a films team that has a director of development and they get pitched stuff all the all the time. And so we now live in a position where if something's about not a good film, like it can be considered for a podcast. Uh, they also are looking for things constantly and they're looking for things for any medium. So we have the benefit of, you know, two people that are just, their lives are thinking of ideas and looking for ideas and helping us make up the difference when we haven't been thinking of enough ideas. For someone who may not have a, a team behind them with researchers and <laughs> things like that, uh, like myself, I at the moment in, in the process of putting a season together uh, for my show and I'm, I've got a few stories in mind, but I'm really struggling. Any advice to seek out stories uh, and kind of maybe a different way of approaching it of not getting stuck in, in that grind where you're just like, I can't find anything. Um, sometimes you get lucky and things just pop up, but... I mean, the, the it's like find it, searching for a story is so painful when you it's like searching for like a house or an apartment right it's always like the yeah. worst experience and then all of a sudden you find the thing and you're like oh it's over now I got it um I mean I find local newspapers to be a really good source of things because you know they will go deep on something uh specific that other people may not have heard of and That's they often really do idea. it with a fami familiarity yeah um that you know, like for something to make a national publication, it has to have like had its moment, right? Yep. And on some level, mm. or it's just going to be maybe a recap or a look at it that's not going to have enough, the detail that would tell you like, oh, this, this is great. Like his grandmother's amazing, you know, like, but in the, you know, smaller local, you know, write up of the thing or the profile, you're going to get those details. Um, you know, I just scour the internet and yeah. search google yeah. alerts for like random words um you know well there are two things i hadn't thought of so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna action those i'm gonna stop throwing out the free local newspaper and uh check out the sports section every week now that's a good idea thank you <laughs> anyone else can i ask without having had the luxury as yet of listening mm -hmm. to bikram which i plan to do asap what has been the impact so and perhaps without giving too much away but um, on you, on Bikram himself, on the community, Jill Lawler. Uh, what? Yeah. What's the the outcome? I'll start with Jill and the community. Um, I'm kind of surprised and humbled and relieved that everyone that participated in it liked how it came out. You know, Jill, in particular, just felt a sense of like relief and she was surprised she just couldn't believe that she was like it sounded like me and I can't thank you enough for putting the good stuff in too you know she as a victim and seeing how she's been portrayed before she like listens to herself and feels that weight of scrutiny that people often listen to victim stories with of like well well why like didn't you know he was a creep like how did you not get away from him and for her hearing the parts of the experience, like where she fell in love with the community and with the yoga and when things were going well. And cause those are the things that made it so that he could take advantage of her. And those are the things that made the fact that he took advantage of her really hard and made it traumatic and made healing really slow and complicated and messy. And she really, you know, when you do listen, you'll hear she struggled to find a way to heal or get out of the situation she was in. And, um, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I have, you know, there are two women who are in the piece who, at the time that I interviewed them, they really could not bring themselves to admit that these things had happened. And in a way that was kind of frustrating and defensive and 
I was nervous. I was very nervous about how each of them would take how they heard themselves and, and the whole thing. They were very concerned that I was talking to victims. And they both listened. One of them like made her mother listen. And they both really loved it and were moved. But most importantly, like they felt it was important for them to listen to Jill's story. And so on the community level, reporting it was frustrating because a lot of people were still really closed off and didn't want to talk. As many people as I did talk to, I talked to a lot of people off the record and a lot of people didn't get past, like, hello. Um, And Me Too hadn't really opened up the community in the way I thought it would. Uh, it ended up being that this piece is the thing that started to open up the community. And so there's a little bit more talking about it and a little bit more acknowledgement of the fact that these things happened. And so I'm, you know, I'm really humbled and really grateful to everyone that took their time to talk to me so that like together we could tell a story that did that. Uh, Bikram himself is just being Bikram, um, he's leading a teacher training as we speak in Acapulco, Mexico. Uh, He's in the middle of bankruptcy filing in the United States. Bankruptcy in the United States tends to move very quickly. Um, It tends to be a system that resolves things. Like the bankruptcy system is just one that like, once you file, like it kind of doesn't, if it doesn't get like kicked out immediately, it's going to go through the process and things are going to be resolved in like really big, loose eye rolling quotes. Um, and so everything that is known about to this date and any outstanding debts he has are included in that bankruptcy filing, including the failure to pay his ex attorney, a $7 million settlement for sexual harassment and wrongful termination, which got him, earned him a bench warrant in the state of California because he had not paid it. And that's the only reason really that he's not in the US at this point. And it's almost impossible to imagine that once the bankruptcy is resolved that that warrant would hold up. So Bikram could be back in the United States in a couple of years. Can you sort of like share what that experience is like being part of the story, I guess, in a sense, and being removed from it? and how it's been for you to sort of put yourself out there in that sense? You know, in this case, it was, you know, it probably saved me like a year of reporting, you know, because I was able to read all of the complaints that have been filed and no one is named in the complaints, it's all initials. And I knew every person's initials, you know, like if you're inside the world, like it's very easy to know like who that champion was or who that one was. and. Um, And I had just connections, you know, I was able to, you know, start by having some deep background conversations with people I knew who had been pretty high up the chain. And, you know, I just was able to get contact information for people that I had never met that were in the inner circle. And from just a pure research point of view, I came in with an amount of knowledge that really like saved me a lot of time. And then it was just a different process of, you know, while I was working on the story, it was very much about the story in a sense that even though I was going through my own journey and I was, you know, aware of it on some levels, but I never let it take the foreground. It really wasn't until the very end of the process and then once it was out there that I was able to sit and stop and deal with, you know, my process of what learning all of this did to me and my own grappling with my history and all of that stuff. Um, but you know, for the sake of, for the sake of telling a story, uh, and getting it done on time and letting it be about the people it needed to be about, uh, that was always my main focus. I will say that I had, you know, there would be moments along the way we did talk a lot about like for example like the role my role as narrator how to find a balance there you know on the one hand it was you know it was absolutely necessary to be completely transparent about my relationship to the community and the subject matter on the other hand you know I also wanted to be a character that an audience could like connect with and I could help them understand things in a way uh especially because this series is really episodic and a lot of characters come on stage and they're there for the moment that they're there and then they don't come back 
But at the same time, I didn't want to get into story taking, right? Like I had gotten out of the community. I was never assaulted. I hadn't been at teacher training. It felt really icky to me to go like super first person-y, which is like a really big trend these days. You know, like, you know, Missing Richard Simmons was wildly successful. And because they were not getting Richard Simmons, it was entirely about the narrator's quest to get Richard Simmons. Um, we didn't want to go that route, even though we could have. And in some ways, some of the structuring and writing would have gotten easier, but it just felt like that would be wrong. So that's what it's like to be that close to the material. Uh, to not be close to the material just you know, inherently just changes it. Like you have to find somebody that you can really get close with who can help you get as close to the world as possible. I mean, you can maintain a distance and observe from afar and lots of people do that, you know, successfully and, and good investigative work and other reporting comes out of that. That's like not, I'm not good at that. I just really like to know things. And so, you know, you just have to like find someone that will let you like glom on and become like a fly on the wall and like, get to meet people and get to know what like something is like. So it's like a little bit, that's a harder process. You've got to find that person and you've got to do research to like learn the language of that world. Give James and Julia Henderson one last round of applause. Thank you. (laughs) 